Expedition 44 here again with Matt and Ryan. We are on part three of First Peter. Today we are tackling two, uh, 11 through 3-7. Again, we're going across a chapter break because there's just parts of them that fit better in context together. Mm -hmm. So we're going to move. We're going to jump right in. This one has a tendency to kind of get long-winded and our goal is to try to keep these to about an hour. Yep. So uh, let's a kick off of the first two verses of the section we're talking about here, which is First Peter 2, 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, um, they, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God on the day of his visitation. All right. So, so yeah, so um, we talked about last week that um, Peter's... The, talk about the whole thesis as the girding up your loins of your mind part and then his argument after that which we covered last week was all about how, about your mindset not conforming to the ways of the world so here he moves on to the second part of that which is how that mindset connects to your behavior yeah so that's kind of the big part of his thesis so he gives three examples of how to live this out in within three i guess structures so you got empire you've got slavery and you got household codes yeah and so that's where he's he's going with uh with his argument that we're going to go get into today. And he starts out with the term of endearment. We see beloved, which kind of is tying in. A lot of times in our in our writing, when we're going to ask somebody for something or we're going to get tense, we kind of start off by giving them a little bit of pat on the back yeah. before we go into that. And that has this kind of a feel to it as well. Yeah, and um, then he uses a term that's very similar to that term of exile that we talked about, parapitamos, but it's slightly different. It's... Uh, um, which he's emphasizing that they're not citizens, they're aliens, but he calls them beloved, where before he called them elect exiles, now he calls them beloved exiles. Getting a little closer, yeah. yeah. Getting a little, a little more sentiment. Yeah, um, so we got to look at the situation here um, as we get into this. Is um, So Christians, obviously, since they worship Jesus, they can't worship the emperor or the, the gods of the pagan neighborhoods here. And so this meant that the Christian women in these households couldn't pass on the, the structure of worshiping these gods, because the women in this culture were the keeper of the flame, I guess yeah. you, would, yeah. you would call it. And then, and this, this is actually a play earlier in First Peter when he, he talks about obedient children. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the idea that this term of obedience, it's actually a Hebrew idiom when you transfer it. So it's what it's saying is that you're growing up and from an early age, even though women in this culture didn't really mean much, they were the ones that instilled obedience. Mm -hmm. And so they're translating the idea of obedience to children to uh, God taking on that eternal mother kind of mindset and giving obedience to the Lord as he gives you obedience. So again, it's that circular relationship that he's really instilling. And that's not by chance. That's all connected within First Peter. Yeah. And then the next thing is he talks, uh, he's going to talk about slaves and slaves often were forced to participate in the, the worship of the, their masters, gods. And so he's going to talk to Christians about not being able to do all of that. So basically, Peter is going to give advice here to the most marginalized people in society of how to live as a witness and be set apart. And when they're doing this, they're not supposed to look for persecution, but it's likely going to come to them because of them not um, conforming to these societal structures. It's still all this backward kind of thinking that, you know, you're taking, he's, he's speaking to these groups and these 
places that are usually not held very high in society and he's saying but you can be great for the kingdom and that's kind of the connection of being set apart that mm -hmm. he's building a preface for yeah and um peter also talks about soul the things that wage war against your soul here and he's not talking about the disembodied soul Platonic, we, we, yeah. yeah we talk about nefesh all the time and that's the definition of the soul that he he has here he always contrasts suke and and sarks um as nefesh the whole of who we are dedicated to god yep. versus sarks is the flesh living in the world so yep. so next we get into uh, he uses a phrase among the gentiles and that was a common Jewish phrase or idiom, you could say, to speak of people being in the diaspora, being yeah. God's people amongst the pagans. And we went into this a lot in earlier videos, but we're trying to figure out, in, in part, who is this written to? It, it does influence the whole, the whole work of, is this mm -hmm. going to the Gentiles or is this going to the Jews? And so when you're looking at this, it's sometimes translated in different translations as Gentiles, but I would kind of argue to that in the NASB oftentimes when you see this exact same word and it's used a lot in the New Testament mm -hmm. over 30 times and sometimes you'll see that it's in capital letters and anytime the NASB puts something in all caps you got to scratch your head and say why is it mm -hmm. like that and so when they translate it this way it translates into a lot of different things it, it might be Gentiles but it might be you know those those that are outside or unsearchable or something like that and so it's not necessarily gentiles it could actually be translated towards towards jews in some cases too and it is yeah it's basically those who are outside of the god's god's people yeah. outside of the remnant exactly. you could say yep. it, it could be that but so peter's audience uh, message here is that his audience is going to be slandered for not taking on the customs of the culture, the gods of the households, and all this, and um, but he's supposed these people can win over um, basically their persecutors by through their behavior. So it's evangelism by their lifestyle, yeah. by who they are. Above reproach within everything, within mm -hmm. the pagans, within those outside of you. Um, it also connects to Peter's judgment, uh, or doctrine of judgment by works. Yeah, we talked about that a lot last week. It's kind of, it's that, and it's Jesus, the echo of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, saying, let your light so shine before men, being salt and light. It's day of the Lord language, but you got to keep the day in the Lord language in the right context. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think that's enough on those first couple of verses. Um, we're going to get into the, the three different categories and look at those a little bit. So first we're going to look at, um, next we're going to look at First Peter 2, 13 to 17, and it's talking about uh, kings or rulers and submission to them. I can read that. Submit yep. yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right, you may silence the ignorant and foolish men. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. That is such a classic line, and there's so much in this. This mm -hmm. is all kind of loaded language, so yeah. to speak. So, throughout the New Testament, we see the world described as the realm of the powers. Yeah, this is powers and principalities uh -huh. language. And so anytime you see the world, there's a little bit of a negative connotation mm -hmm. to that. And 
It's God's world, but it's been turned over, and it will be regained and reclaimed and renewed. Yeah, so when they're talking here, this, the worldly structures here are under the control of the Satan, the powers, the principalities. Yep. So Peter here isn't giving instructions or teaching that the government is good or anything like that, which some people take wrongly when they when they read this. There's some divine right of kings, and we'll do an episode coming up contrasting yeah. this in Romans 13, yeah. um, because a lot of people will get off the tracks and say that, oh, well, government's actually good. It's and, actually insinuating the other uh, side The opposite, that. yeah. <laughs> so, Contronym language, yeah, so it, don't get that one wrong. Yeah, and so he talks about submission. So submission here isn't subjugation. It's willing the willingness to put yourself under an authority. Yeah. It's, he's talking about freedom here. You, you freely put yourself under under the authority of someone else. So remember that they're aliens and strangers, and so the message is not to submit to, I guess, their worldview, but you can submit maybe to their customs. You're an ambassador. So when an ambassador goes into another country, it's not that they live under the rules of the country they came from. Their mindset's still there, but sometimes you have to obey these laws as long as it doesn't contradict your the, of who you are. An ambassador is really a great term here for our modern way of thinking about mm -hmm. things because if we send in an ambassador to a country that we're at war with, they're still pleading on their country's case. You mm -hmm. know, they're they're not they haven't joined the other team. Yeah. And so so that's the way we have to think about it, and that's unfortunately not the way we live it most yeah. of the time. Yeah, and um, notice the term here um, is not obedience or obey. It's yeah. submit. So they had words for um, basically to submit or to obey authority, but obedience in First Peter is only reserved for God. Yeah. You get this in 1 verse 2, 1 verse 14, 1 verse 22, where the Christians call us to obedience to God, but it's to the world is to submit and it's for the Lord's sake is what it says. So here. even though there's a recognition of, of sort of honor in submission to the world, you still have to keep the mindset that the world is not your king. Yeah. Jesus is king and so you're going to honor even the evil side of things in terms of respecting them and what it looks like to brothers and sisters in Christ and the rest of the world to live in accordance with those things in peace. Jesus yeah. taught peace over and over and yeah. over. And so we're bearing Christ's name in doing this as ambassadors so that we might win them over is the whole purpose of this, not just because God set up these structures because they're good in some way. So how can you win somebody over as a brother or sister in Christ if you're constantly at war with them? Yeah. It doesn't work. Yeah. So next he gets into authorities and freedoms, and, he, um, and what the NASB here defines as, the, interprets as human institutions, it's kind of a poor translation. Yeah. So we go right to thinking about governments right. here. <laughs> so, but, um, but kitesis here, the, the Greek word, is always used, it means a creature. Yeah. So it's talking about here, the one, like, it's, he's talking about the emperor, or the king, or the governor, and not the system. It's something that's alive, and I would even say something that's created is important mm -hmm. there because there's a reference to all things being owned by God in the beginning. Yep, so Peter here is calling them to honor the emperor, but not to worship him. Yeah. And it's almost a kind of a backhand slap in the face because they thought he was a god, but yep. he's saying, he, well, he's actually a, a created being. Yeah. <laughs> he's not. <laughs> god made that guy you're calling a god. God, yeah. yeah. So. At the same time, Peter calls the people to submit, or the better word might be to serve all human creatures because they're made in the image of God. Um, it's the whole Philippians chapter 2 um, 
kenosis, emptying yourself, yeah. the foot washing mentality of Jesus, of serving all who are under him, even though he's at a place of higher authority. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So the next purpose here it says the governors are supposed to keep justice to punish evildoers. This and is an interesting one that you know. This, the scripture kind of looks to a worldly council to kind of keep justice within the worldly council. Yeah. And a lot of Christians have a problem with that. They think that God should be stepping in and continually showing the world his term of justice, but that's usually not what we get in the scripture. Yeah, it's kind of like the, though God doesn't seem to approve of government, we see this when Israel rejected him as king, yeah. um, he allows these systems in place to keep some sort of order until um, all basically his righteousness comes fully on yeah. the earth and so yeah. we can kind of see it that way a guy um a commentator named campbell he he notes that um giving public distinctions so he's talking about here that um the phrase about them honoring you for your good works he said that public distinctions to benefactors was the role of basically um the governors in that and so he's calling christians to do works of benefaction good works yeah. in society so that they will be praised and not seen as basically agitators or anarchists right, and stuff right, like right, that right. so he's calling them to do the public good and i think that echoes of um jeremiah what he tells how he tells israel to live in exile yeah uh, jeremiah 29 where he tells them to build houses to plant gardens to take take wives to not decrease to seek the welfare of the city um and pray for it on the lord's behalf because in its welfare you will have welfare so there's a sense here that is important to get that what what we're hearing in Jeremiah and what we're hearing in First Peter is is this idea that we're almost enslaved to the world, that we're under this almost evil oppressor as we often think about it. And it's talking about living at peace even with the other side. You know, this is our rival, our countercultural kingdom, and it's saying live at peace because in the end we're hoping that everything is reconciled together. And yep. you are part of our tools and instruments in order to do that. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, he uses three phrases here in the chapter. Uh, he uses the Lord of, of Jesus or, or God, he uses free people, and he uses bond slaves of God. And so all of these play an important part in what he's communicating here. So Peter's telling his audience that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. Allegiant language. Yep. Yeah, so yeah. that's when he uses Lord, that's what they would be thinking. Play nice, but don't forget your place, yep. your yeah. position. And then actually he calls them freed people, and now this is not a freed slave, but someone who's born free. So he's talking about citizenship here when he yeah. calls them free people. That your citizenship isn't of this country. He's it's back to ambassador language, but he calls them as free people. You're actually bond slaves of God. And this is born again language. Uh -huh. and I just wrote a huge article yeah. that we don't have time to get into, but that's important. So they're not to use their status really to disobey the laws of the land and to cause an uproar, but they should live under them submit to them as a witness to God, but ultimately obey our obediences to the Lord. Yeah, and bond slaves has some significance here too. Yeah, so doulos was someone who um, willingly submits to their master even though they could buy their manumission. Yeah, and so what it was kind of like saying, and we think of slaves in terms of like Civil War slavery, it would be as if you released your slave and they said, no, this no, is where I live. This, this is my this home. Is, this yeah. is my home. Yeah, I, I'm going to serve you even though I don't have this debt of slavery. I, I'm going to 
serve you my whole life anyways. And, and again, that's so countercultural in rival nation thinking that we would that we would treat our enemies or our rivals with that kind of dignity. Mm -hmm. It's just it's not common to the world that we live in. It's it's Jesus language though. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then he puts some contrasts here at the end in that last verse is uh, where he talks about honoring all people there's a primacy on loving the brotherhood in the church though so we yeah. honor all people but we love those within the yeah. family of god yep. then there's fear of god versus honor the king so god alone is due awe and reverence but the king since he's a created person in the image of god he deserves honor like everybody else yeah so this is interesting because what it comes down to the end is he's actually saying not to elevate their status mm -hmm. and so he's saying this is the way that we should treat anybody, king, governor, you know, anybody. You sh you should give them this kind of respect, and this comes into a lot of in the in the New Testament. Oftentimes, in in our modern church world, we elevate maybe pastors, missionaries, things like that, thinking that they have a higher calling. But the truth is that we are all called to the priesthood of believers, yeah. and there's mm -hmm. this equality amongst everybody. And even though there's respect and honor language. It's not, it's not pointed at a specific ruler. And sometimes different denominations kind of put their pastors on this pedestal as if everybody should almost worship them. And that replaces the worship that's only supposed to be due to God. Yep. Yeah, so this whole section here is Peter's message is that your identity is of God's, you're God's bond slave, and that demands your total allegiance. You yeah. can't serve two masters. Right, right. And Pick so, one. Yep. So, <laughs> and likewise, he's saying take on the attitude of Christ, which was a servant. So it's the call, the mentality to honor and sub submit to all, but not be subject to all. We're only subject to God. So, But we're also to love those especially those who are in Christ. This is so hard. It's, it's the turn your cheek to everybody all the time mentality. And the, it, it, how how are you supposed to serve those that you like, but also those that you don't, don't like? like? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and we're going to be discussing a little bit maybe how this ties into some of our political views in the U.S. when we talk about some of this in class tonight and how should we as, I guess, Americans think of ourselves, are we more of a biblical Babylon or more in the lines of a type of Israel? And so how does our national allegiances maybe hinder uh, Christ-like love, honor, and service? And we've done a lot of videos on uh, yeah. this. In fact, yeah. you, you've kind of done a whole series about the six-part series talking yep. a lot about it. Series. Really, yep. in our last year, this has been one of our mantras is... is looking to Christ alone, Christ only. I hate to use Christ alone, yeah. but when you use it in the right context, it's right. It is. And so um, that's what we're looking about is sole allegiance to the king, rival nation things. How should we How should we view America as, as God's country or as Babylon? Yeah. Those are great questions to yeah. ask. And it seems that Peter doesn't put any credence on governmental structures right. here, so why should we and the only nation that seems to matter to Peter is the kingdom of God where everybody else receives honor, receives submission and and respect, but he doesn't even recognize these places as the Roman Empire as the nation because of Christ's um, victory on the cross. So when we think of love, honor, service, things like that, we usually think of being a good patriot, a, a Christian yeah. patriot, but that's actually counter to, counter to what he's saying. Yeah, yeah, so he's like the only, our only patriotism should be to our allegiance to Jesus and yep. the, the kingdom of God, not any 
Not any country, not any flag besides God's kingdom. Good. So. Next we get into slaves and submission. It says, this is 1 Peter 2, 18 to 20. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable, for this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up the under the sorrows when suffering unjustly, for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure with patience? But if when but if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with the Lord. Alright, so Peter's next example here is slaves. So he's working from the greatest in the world's eyes to the, the least. Yeah. Um, so size is a structure walking down more household language yep. going on here and this is very <laughs> hebraic and so this is another reason why matt and i totally see a mixed audience because if this was just written to jews he wouldn't actually need to say any of this yeah they would totally get it but he's kind of backing up because he has a mixed audience and he's needing to explain this in detail yeah so the first thing to notice here is that he is um oikotai, which is a household slave and not chattel slavery and not agricultural slavery yep. he's addressing a very specific audience of slaves that live within their master's household yep and so that's and everywhere that slavery is mentioned in the new testament it's of this kind of slavery yeah. um not the ones that are working in the field so the focus here is very narrow and specific and often we ask, why doesn't Peter and Paul condone slavery? Yeah. That's a big question that kind of we get uh, right. when we're approaching slavery in the... This are they saying that it's okay? Yeah. Uh, are, mean, they, are they not? What's going on here? Because um, many of these passages were used in the Civil War type era, in the slavery era, in the United States, and even abroad um, for all of that type of stuff to show that the Bible was pro-slavery. It's very difficult first, whenever you're trying to figure something out culturally, to put yourself within that culture mm -hmm. when you don't have a way to understand yeah. it. So it's hard for us to see all the different dynamics of slavery, but if we were to jump in a time capsule and go back to the Roman Empire, one third of the entire population was slaves. Yeah. How, how do you begin to interpret that when for many years it became the norm? Yeah. Yeah, and so it's it was way different than modern like Civil War type slavery. Um, so many ancients chose slavery because it wasn't even a permanent condition. Right. It was one that they could buy their freedom out of. It yeah. wasn't like the slavery that we saw here in America. It was um, almost like a job. We get this with like the fife and peasant Middle mm -hmm. Ages yep. thing, and that's a much better view of slavery than the way that we think of civil war slavery today. And often selling yourself into slavery could result in some benefits such as Roman citizenship and, and um, actually if you were poor and sold yourself into slavery you would have a much better life than somebody than just being a freed person who was poor. And it was a way to get out of debt as mm -hmm. well. Oftentimes that if you gave yourself to a rich nobleman or something like that they would wipe out your debt. Let's say that I, mm -hmm. I was a slave and I in our in our mind I owed $20,000 and there was no way I could ever, it was going to take me years to get rid of $20,000 where if I gave myself into slaves, all of a sudden the rich nobleman, that would be nothing to yeah, him. He yeah, would, he pay, would it pay it off like that. Yeah, and just so, have you work for him. So it was a way of getting out of credit card debt. How many Americans today <laughs> yeah. would love to just snap their fingers and get yeah. out of credit? Yeah. If you signed on a new job and they said, I'll tell you what, we're going to wipe out your credit card debt if you come to work for me. How many people would make that deal? Mm -hmm. And essentially, by biblical terms, you'd be selling yourself into slavery. Yeah. 
So another thing um, is all of the slave revolts, there are multiple slave revolts between 140 and 170 BC, and none of them were about abolishing slavery. Right. <laughs> Which is kind of interesting. So, and another few interesting notes is in the New Testament, like we said, all it's always addressed to domestic slaves. Yeah. And um, from all the evidence we had in the Roman Empire, domestic slaves were treated fairly well, and it wasn't very much like what we think of American slavery. So there's one more point to be made here. We've been contrasting God's kingdom with mm -hmm. man's kingdom, and in man's kingdom today, we don't contone slavery at all. We say, "What? Why is the Bible, you know, mm -hmm. leaving this open when we want it to just yep. God to deal justice on it a hard hand?" But the problem is, according to the biblical term of slavery. Every Christian American, 99.999% is a slave by biblical standards today. We all have huge mortgages on our house that we owe to some bigger place, to cars. Every time we do that, we're actually going into the term of what biblical slavery is knowingfully. So if you lived in the time of Rome, guess what you would be called? A slave. Yeah. Yeah, so the New Testament neither endorses nor condones this uh, structure of, of slavery. So it's, Which does go both ways. Yeah. A lot of people try to justify biblically yeah. you know, mortgaging a house. Why, why am I okay with speaking this language and having a house mortgage? Well, because it goes both ways. There's kind of a, maybe a thought, too, that both Paul and Peter believe that the new creation is coming soon, so these structures are all going to be changed anyways within yeah. their lifetime, yeah. um, which... But it's kind of also an already but not yet thing. We Within the church, we see there's no slave, free, Jew, Greek, yep. man, woman. And so within the church, they live out this freedom, the new creation now as if it is here. Um, but it doesn't so much look like it sometimes outside. <laughs> so they knew they were in transformation. They just thought that this was going to happen fast. Yeah. And, and now we're 2,000 years later. Uh -huh. so. Yeah. So um, interesting, like when we look at the treatment of slaves, Aristotle viewed slaves as property and concluded that there was no such thing as unjust treatment of a slave. Do whatever you want. Yeah, yeah. but Peter disagrees here. Peter sees slaves as people and people to be treated with um, respect and they're able to have a relationship with God and able to make decisions which was very counter to the sometimes the view of in the Roman world, especially yeah. from the elites. And there's also this idea that if you were a slave of a household, that you were going to take on the religion or the god that your lord took on. Now yeah. this is, did you notice my language here? So the person over the household was the lord of the house, but then they also worshipped the lord that was uh -huh. higher than him. And so the obedience language is that you need to honor these lords above you, but at the same time, no, you don't obey. <laughs> they're not your king. Yeah, so his advice here um, is that slaves have already given their full allegiance to Jesus, and so in doing that, they may suffer it for not taking on the household gods. And the focus here is about suffering for what, doing what is right, which is obedience to God, versus suffering and revolting against your the, the system or whatever like that. So his his basically his example is Jesus because yes. Jesus suffered for doing what was right here on earth so the slaves are supposed to take on the same mindset of Christ and there's there's a sense that this is going to be unjust mm -hmm. that you know we're not looking for Jesus to come down off the cross and establish justice over everything in a human mindset that's not going to happen it's the opposite again mm -hmm. that 
you're not going to. Your joy is going to be in suffering through what is unjust. And the ultimate picture is Christ hanging on a cross. His own people put him there for unjust things. And that's the picture that we're to follow as Christians. Mm -hmm. So next, this leads us actually into Peter has a short little, I guess, parenthesis of, of Christ's suffering as our example. Um, so let's read 1 Peter 2, 21 to 25. It says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps, uh, who, for, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. When suffering, he uttered no threats, but keeping entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. And he bore our sin in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live righteous, uh, for righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. So this is more Hebraic circular thought pattern. So we often talk about the reciprocal dance of gift giving in grace. That you give a gift and the expectation is that the person that receives the gift Regifts and it becomes circular like this relationship. This is the same type of picture. So Christ in his suffering is going to be the ultimate show of suffering and ask that we also take on the same mindset of suffering and this becomes a circular pattern that seems like a lot of trouble and toil and everything else but in the Hebraic mindset this is where the extreme blessings are going to come whether you see them or not, you are actually blessed by the more you had to endure through the hardest of suffering. Mm -hmm. So here, Peter uses the word for his word for example is hupogramos, um, which it really has the meaning of discipleship or the pattern to follow. It literally means to follow in the footsteps. So Peter uses um, the word uh, hupogramos here. It's uh, the word that means um, example. Um, it's really got a context of discipleship to follow a pattern literally it means following the footsteps of the walk yeah walk like it and in the greco-roman education system they would have these um hoopograms that were um wax impressions of like the alphabet and yep. the kids would learn to trace and write their letters with these things and basically they're saying christ is our hoopogram and we're supposed to walk as he walked follow trace out his footsteps this is so well crafted because at the beginning we're going to be talking about uh, not conforming to the world and that mold. So he starts out at the beginning of the text saying, do not be conformed in this mold. But then he comes back and he uses the same kind of Hebraic language to say, now this is this is the way that you should walk in the mold of the Savior. Yeah, and then Peter uses a whole lot of Isaiah 53 in here. And we've done a whole episode on Isaiah 53. So if you want to connect that in atonement, go back to our atonement series and watch our entire thing there. But um, an interesting thing that Peter does is he doesn't um, go through it like exegetically, like line by line, in order. He jumps around in the text, applying different instances in there to Jesus and his model for us to follow. So he goes, he quotes verse 9, then verse 7, then goes 4, 5, 6. So yeah. he's just jumping, jumping and, around. And again, these are quotes out of the Septuagint. So uh -huh. if you just read them in your NASB, let's say, and, you try, and yeah. you try to go back and make the correlations, you're going to stumble around a little bit. But if you had a Septuagint in front of you, they would be very, very much almost exact translations. Mm -hmm. So some things to notice here about, uh, I guess, Jesus and the, on the cross and his, the passion, I guess you could call it, is that on 
on trial, Jesus didn't defend yeah. himself. Yeah. And so they're supposed to take on the same mindset. And in his suffering, he actually forgave sinners while this was happening. And boy, is that hard. So, you know, the, the turnover is when we're suffering, when people are throwing spears and fiery daggers at us, is some of that language that we're supposed to freely forgive while that's happening. Mm -hmm. And through the remember, through the view of the crowd, Jesus was a transgressor, but through his resurrection, he was vindicated. So yeah. it's the view of the crowd is that um, Jesus was deserving of this punishment because of what he, his life, but God being the ultimate judge, which they talk about in the passage, is the one who he, he submit, entrusted himself to, he raised him from the dead. And so it's saying that in your sufferings, though you might look like you're doing evil or being ridiculed in the eyes of the world, entrust yourself to God as Jesus did and he will raise you up. Yeah, and this is um, one of, there's a few places in the Bible where we get bear sin. We all often laugh about that, get t-shirts that have little bear <laughs> sin bear. on them or something <laughs> yeah. like that. But, but what does that mean? This is important because we kind of see this in Romans 8.3. We also get it in Hebrews 9.28. A lot of people, this is where they stumble with. Did, yeah. what, what, what does it mean that he bore our sin? Yeah, so they look at that, oh, did God place all the sin on Jesus and punish was the Trinity separated yeah, here? Yeah. yeah, so that so in Romans 8 3 it says that Jesus condemned sin in the flesh. It didn't say that Jesus was condemned. Right. <laughs> so right. we need to make that distinction. It's a wordplay on flesh in yep. in Romans, if you kind of follow that. Peter does a lot of the same thing, that basically it's the ways of the world were punished. Yeah. And the and that's so it was sin being punished and not sinners. Yeah. So it's it's spirit resurrection yeah. language that you have to kind of put. So the context is cosmic healing. Yeah. In Romans eight, the whole context, if you read that whole chapter, it's about believers being delivered from times of trials, and the world is going to be transformed because of the sin being condemned in the flesh. Yeah. So, uh, and then when we get to Hebrews nine twenty eight, it's the same word Alma Pharaoh that used here for bear in in one Peter two twenty four. Um, and so in Hebrews, Jesus is primarily defined as the high priest and secondarily as the sacrifice. And we often flip those in our Western yeah. mindset because we concentrate so much on the sacrifice. But the word is also used in Hebrews 7, 27. And it speaks of the action of a priest carrying the sacrifices off, yeah. um, carrying things around. So, and we got to remember, we went over this in really in depth in our atonement yeah. series, is that the animals, if they bore sin, they wouldn't be a... A, a sacrifice because God only got what was pure right. and unstained. Right. And so if Jesus is sin, he becomes sin, then he isn't a pure sacrifice and he can't actually atone for sin. Yeah. Then so it's there's just no transferring thinking. of sins. Oftentimes you hear when people preach on this, the the priest laying the hands on the animal, transferring the sin over the people, but that's really not biblical. That's not no. in the scriptures. That's it. That sometimes you actually read in rabbinical Judaism, and that's where I say you really got to be careful separating what the Bible says from later rabbinical Judaism because they get a little off sometimes. Yeah, so laying on the hands was commissioning that animal for a purpose, just like we do when we lay on hands yeah. to commission someone for the ministry. It was setting them apart for a purpose, not transferring of a substance. Yep, it's Kadosh language. So when Jesus bore sin, it's in the language of expiation, or we talked about this a lot, is purging the ritual. Covered, detergent. dissolved. Yep, yeah. yep. So when Jesus bears sin, it's him dissolving yep. sin, um, and it results in healing. Yep. So that's the whole bear sin. And we went over um, basically Isaiah 53, where a lot of people like to tie it into penal substitutionary language a lot in our our series there so i think that we 
don't have to get into that if you want to look more on atonement yep. with it go watch our atonement series um <laughs> and it really is important to make this isaiah 53 connection in first peter because if you if you take the wrong view of isaiah 53 you're not going to be able to connect all of 1 Peter. It's mm -hmm. going to seem like it's very disjointed and it's not going to mm -hmm. make sense. And this is the problem. I've heard people almost want to throw 1 Peter out of the Bible because it doesn't fit into their... They, they can't reconcile it within theology. And the way that Matt and I view 1 Peter connected to our interpretation of Isaiah 53, it's, it fits the lens of the Bible. There's mm -hmm. no crazy gymnastics or reworking yeah. or or throat we're just not going to read that section because we can't make make sense of it it all fits yep so when we when we look at his use here the the way that peter is applying isaiah 53 isn't really in an atonement type sense right um it's jesus's example through his crucifixion and all the events leading up to that is what we need to put on is in his sufferings how jesus acted and how he was still a light bearer within that within unjust systems uh, this, these slaves are called to take on the same attitude of christ and his sufferings so what matt just said is really important if you need isaiah 53 to justify your view of atonement you've got a poor view of atonement mm -hmm. and so in this instance He's referencing Isaiah 53, but not in terms of atonement. It's like no. he doesn't even really need it for atonement. Actually, when you look at Isaiah 53, every time it's quoted outside of Isaiah 53, it's never in an atonement context. Yeah. It's always in taking on the mindset of the suffering servant. So I don't want to point too many fingers here because this hits close to home to some of my very good friends. But, you know, when you look at Isaiah 53, if we didn't have it, would your atonement theory hold up? And if the answer is no, you need Isaiah 53, then I would say you might want to revisit that. Yeah. All right. So we, this was all addressed to slaves, taking on the mindset of Jesus and trusting um, themselves to the one who righteously judges and will redeem their soul. Um, from that, he moves on. So we've gone through empire, we've gone through slavery, and then he goes to basically believing wives that are under unbelieving husbands. So that's First Peter 3, 1 to 6, says, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by your behavior. Um, they also observed your, your, your chaste and, um, and respectful behavior. Um, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding of the hair, wearing of gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, um, but let the the hidden person of the heart with the indistinguishable qualities of gentleness and a quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of the Lord. For in this way the former times the holy women also hoped in God um, and used to adorn themselves with submission um, to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. So what this section is on is it's talking to wives that are of the faith that have husbands that aren't of the faith. And so this is, this. it's interesting that he starts out here with the unjust. He just got mm -hmm. done talking about how to live in an unjust relationship and he goes into marriage. Now, he's not talking about the perfect ideal marriage. He gets to that in verse yeah. 7. We're going to yeah. get to that. But right now he's talking, how do you live in that unjust, that unequally yoked situation? Yeah, and it's... 
crazy that a lot of people use this section and apply it to Christian marriages. Yeah. <laughs> which is <laughs> which is not not good. Right. So, so keep it have, in context. Keep it in context here. So these instructions, like you said, are wives with pagan husbands. And the typical household code stated that wives should take on the gods of their husbands. So but these wives, being Christian wives, are not to take on the gods of their husbands. They're remember they're so to submit but not to obey. Yeah. There's a difference in words there, um, similar to what we talked about with slavery and similar to what we talked about with empire. Yeah, and there's there's also something of, you know, submitting to your own husband here. Mm -hmm. so Not is, to every man. Is it, yeah. <laughs> what people want to make this out to be, you get into the, a lot of this when you get to egalitarian conversations and yeah. complementarian is... Does every wife is, is for what First Peter's saying is every wife has to submit to every guy? That's not in the scripture here. No, it's not in the scripture anywhere. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, um, so Peter is calling wives to be submissive, and again, it's to the context is for the sake of winning over their husbands by their life. What's interesting is it's not really any different than what he was talking about, the Lord, Lord language. Uh -huh. Submit to the Lord. Submit to everybody in uh -huh. this way. Give them honor because the end goal is that they're going to join our team. Yep. So then he talks about adornment, and Peter speaks of being more ordained with your character and with your behavior that reflects Jesus and not so much with fancy things. Yep. Now, Peter is exhorting wives not to dress like the society, which would be reflective of serving their gods and things like that. And that's really what the context of it is. It's not so much that he's throwing out, it's evil to have nice things. So in the ancient Old Testament, we had circumcision as a sign of what was going on in the heart. In the mm -hmm. New Testament, we have baptism as a sign that's going on in your heart. He takes it one step further and says, everything should be a sign of what's going on in your heart. Mm -hmm. When somebody sees you, they should see a Christiformity mm -hmm. in everything. Yeah, so Peter's not really being a legalist. He's just saying that you need that what you communicate here um, is more connected to society when you dress this way than it is with the kingdom of God. Yeah. So he's he's saying that um, do what reflects the kingdom. Right. Um, then he brings up the example of Abraham and Sarah. Yeah. So it's interesting. Um, Lord here in in Greek uh, in that culture would have been very similar to like the way that we use the word sir today. Yeah. Like calling somebody sir. It's a respectful title. And so he's just telling his wives to be respectful of, of their husbands. And a lot of people want to take this as subordination. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in our in our world, that doesn't mean what it might have meant 50 years ago. We've kind of gotten mm -hmm. better there. But there's yep. still a lot of those connotations. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting when you look at the only the one time in Scripture when Sarah calls Abraham Lord. It's actually kind of a backhanded, like, like she's being very sarcastic yes. when she does it. Yes. She's not, like being submissive even and actually in the context there Abraham is submitting more to Sarah's ideas than, than Sarah is to Abraham and she's saying live up to your title here <laughs> uh, yeah basically that's that's what she's saying and we also have an Abra Abraham in Genesis 12 and 20 where he kind of demeans Sarah and puts Sarah in harm's way and so the context here is when these women are being put in harm's way com he's actually comparing the pagan husbands to Abraham in the way that he behaved is that Sarah entrusted herself to God's protection and God came through in both those instances and he's so he's using this example of saying just like Sarah entrusted herself to God underneath a husband that didn't treat her well you need to do the same entrust yourself to God and in these situations in order that you might win your husbands over. So I think the, the takeaway from mm -hmm. all this is that all of these things that he's talking about, he's talking about empire language, slave language, patriarchal household codes, 
all of them are going to be established by man. They're mm-hmm. not ordained by God. And so this again gets important into sometimes the way that we filter next level relationships, that we're to treat everybody equally, no matter if they're the Lord, the Lord, the Lord over uh-huh. the things. There's only one Lord, and that is Jesus Christ. Yep, and I guess just a side note um, here is Ryan and I would probably tell you if you are in an abusive relationship that you should not submit to abuse. You should get out of that. This is not saying that you need to bear up under everything, any kind of abuse. So we would tell any wives or even husbands out there that are in the abusive relationship that they're to seek help and to get out of that, not just to submit to it out of being a good um, witness. And what's biblical is slaves in this context, the majority of the one-third population could freely leave their relationship. There's Mm -hmm. some that couldn't and needed to be rescued, which Uh Jesus can rescue you in terms of that. But it's biblical. Leave, yeah. leave, leave the relationship if that's if that's what's going on. Seek help. Seek reconciliation from people that understand scripture language. Yep. Um, so I guess the conclusions here, the major takeaway is all three of these examples, empires, slaves, patriarchal household codes, were the structures of human making and not ordained by God. Yep. Christians were called to endure them as they lived in these societies, but these structures are never said to be set forth by God. Yeah. Live as a witness, live as an alien, but but as you honor and respect in order to win them over to your side, mm-hmm. remember that it's a rival nation, that this is not your king, that there's only yeah. one Lord. You're an ambassador from the kingdom of heaven here, and sometimes the, that, that mission that we are on um, requires us to live in situations that are not ideal. Um, and Jesus isn't calling us to go baptize these versions of these systems of the world. Um, We're just supposed to bear under them for the sake of others right now. So um, so too often people try to baptize government as a Christian thing, a good Christian thing. They try to baptize um, this slavery and uh, like talk about acquiring things, putting yourselves in debt and becoming slaves as Oh, it's a good. It's a good thing we could we could get this for the kingdom, right. or or even patriarchal marriage structures. And I kind of I'm <laughs> laughing because I think how messed up is that? Uh-huh. Yet our Christian audience does that all the time today. Yep. So the last verse here uh, that we're going to cover today is First Peter three seven, which is actually to believing husbands and wives. Yep. So this is the one that he wants us to actually get into. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker since she is a woman, and show your honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Now, right away, Matt, I don't like your translation. I read yeah, that and I, I go, oh I just my copied goodness. and pasted it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let's talk through it a little yeah. bit. Yeah, so household codes here, um, we're usually addressed to men, and it's interesting that he, in the previous section, addressed it to women. You never found any household codes never in the ancient world you can read aristotle you can read josephus um all of those they had a poor view of women they thought that they were inferior to man in every way and that they needed to be obedient to husbands in in everything basically it was the complete patriarchal structure um and let's be clear here these are the thoughts of unbelievers um and their view of households and women and so it's interesting to look that sometimes in the Bible we don't we're not necessarily reading somebody's 
teaching or what they think Jesus says. We're just we're just hearing the culture, and then we're going to hear how to live within that culture. And then it's up to us to take what it meant in that culture and reapply it to the culture that we live in today. Yeah, so when Peter here addresses men in seven, it's like we said, it's after he addresses women. And Peter's thoughts here on women are different than the Roman culture. Yeah, <laughs> totally backwards. So um, what he uses here, he uses um, the word uh, skoios, which um, is, it doesn't mean body, doesn't mean vessel, doesn't mean person. Yeah. Um, there's a big debate on that, and we're not going to be able to get into all nope. the sides of it. But, <laughs> but Peter makes it clear that there's a quality amongst the sexes in this verse. Yeah. Um, we see this a lot elsewhere in Scripture as well, and we might touch on that a little bit. But we did a whole series on women in ministry where we looked at headship, so you can go look at the second episode of that series if you want to deal more with that. But Peter's calling men here um, to stand up for those who are un, in an unprivileged position. Yeah. Um, I believe that when Peter's talking about this here, he's not saying that women are lacking in physical nature, mentalness, emotional weaknesses. I think that when he's looking at this, he's looking at it from a weaker social context. We knew, yeah. based on what we just came out of when we were talking about women submitting to unbelieving husbands, that they are in a weaker social context. So being the weaker sex means that women are not as privileged as men are in society. Now, it's also interesting that he's, he's using borrowed language here. And so this isn't something that he's just coming up with. And again, this isn't original language mm -hmm. coming from the Bible. And so what we have to interpret it is earlier in, in writings of the Bible, we hear all the time of how are we to act towards a weaker brother. And so mm -hmm. that's the same kind of language that we're getting. If you take, you know, what I'd encourage you to do is this is language that's not only because of the culture of, you know, the weaker person. The woman here was the weaker person because of the culture, mm -hmm. but in our culture, the mindset is that you should almost consider everybody the weaker brother. Ideally, if yeah. you're walking the walk that you're walking, you would honor and respect in the way that you deal everybody in hopes that you're a little farther in your maturity spiritually than everybody else. At least become the greatest in the kingdom. Yes. So, so give them the benefit of the doubt in every situation. Humbly submit every chance you get is kind of what they're saying. And even though I'm not going to discount that women were, you know, kind of dejected in that culture and that's what he's speaking to right now, the context is really everybody. And that is the flavor of this entire section that we've been talking about is to not look at the hierarchy of the world, but to look at what God sees of considering everybody greater than yourself. Yeah, so he talks about men and women, husbands and wives here being fellow heirs of grace. He, it's co-equal language. Yeah. Um, so notice that there's no talk between the Christians of subordination or, or submission. We get in Ephesians 2.21 that husbands and wives are to submit to each other. Yeah. Um, it's not one to somebody else who's in an authority. They are yep. co-equal co and the language all talks of that. And we've talked a lot about the meaning of head, not meaning yeah. authority. Kephale didn't mean authority till a hundred years after Peter and Paul. So in my, my favorite illustration, just real quick, is when you think of the head, they were borrowing military language there that, you know, the, the person in the front isn't isn't going to be the person that is the general, yeah, that the outranks front. everybody yeah. else. He's the one taking the shots, taking the bullets. Nobody wants to, in, a, in an army situation, says, 
You go be the head. You go be the lead. Yet in humble submission, you should want to take the lead, to take the hits. This whole thing is on toil and mm -hmm. trouble and taking joy and seeing others, you know, greater than you, in which case that would put you at the head. Mm -hmm. So countercultural to the way that we yeah. think of it. But again, when we look at it in this view, it connects the complete lens of servanthood, Christiformity, and everything else. Yeah, and so the last line here, it says that your prayers will be hindered if you don't do these things, yeah. which is interesting. <laughs> so Peter concludes with the warning that Christian husbands are, to take, are not to take on the behavior of the pagans, which was that hierarchy... Um, inequality type thing and says that if they fail to honor their wives it will result in God not listening to their prayers yeah <laughs> Which strong is, words we get we get some of that yeah so Paul I think Peter's warning here is serious that communication failure um, is tied to them misunderstanding the heart of God and the way that they express it in their marriage relationship yeah. and that when they act this way they it's a serious warning that they need to take care of those who are the most vulnerable in society and bring them up to be their equals. Yep. And that's what biblical justice is all about. Yeah, and there's a link to the the person at the, the top, which is really, this is words to everybody, you should consider mm -hmm. yourself there, needs to be in prayerful supplica supplication as a servant over your household. Yep, so wrapping this all up, the basically the application, the thrust of this argument that we looked at um, is about how to live as exiles in the world. Yeah. Um, he took three examples of Christians that aren't, uh, of systems that Christians are, are in or people that Christians might be under and how we submit to them and imitate Jesus in broken systems. Yeah. Um, and it really is interesting that the references, we don't get anything on trying to change this whole system. In fact, nowhere in the New Testament no. do we get anything on trying to change the broken system of the world. Yeah. It, it pretty much says just stay out of yeah. it. They try to change people. Yeah. That's yeah. <laughs> really what it's more like. So they're called through this service and through their persecutions as a sacrifice, really, is it may bring about healing when these people. Um, come to Jesus yeah. and so we're supposed to be witnesses and to endure up under these things just like Jesus the suffering servant himself good may the Lord bless you and keep you